Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You know, hope for me is, is reality-based. I don't use the word language of optimism. It's not wishful thinking. It's deciding I'm going to live by this vision, and um, I'm going to point at it when I see it. I'm going to embody it when I can. This is what I'm going to move towards and, you know, hopefully be infectious in that, um, encouraging others to move towards. So it's not something you have to have given to you, but it is something you have to claim. Today's episode of Good Life Project is actually brought to you by Camp GLP, which is short for Camp Good Life Project. So for three and a half days at the end of August, we're taking over this gorgeous 130-acre summer camp, and it's about 90 minutes outside of New York City, to create the ultimate summer camp for grown-ups and entrepreneurs and makers and aspiring world shakers. And last year we had about 350 amazing campers from literally all over the world. I think every continent was represented and everyone gathered for this kind of good life love fest and left with you know the kind of epic stories and friends that you rarely ever make as a grown-up anymore and, and you kind of never want to leave once you find them. And campers' heads were also filled with tons of new ideas and strategies and tools for everything from creativity to living better to accelerated business and entrepreneurial growth. We've had everyone from healers to artists to tech entrepreneurs and CEOs and even a musician who played Wembley Stadium. But here's the cool thing. Nobody knew or cared because Camp GLP is just not about that. It's not about posturing. It's not about what you do. It's this place where you get to just show up. And many people show up alone, not knowing anyone. And you get to just drop the facade, instantly be embraced and just be you and meet amazing new friends and just totally be yourself while learning how to do amazing things in your personal life, in your business life, in your working life, and just completely refilling your good life tank along the way. 
So if that sounds cool to you, if that sounds like the type of experience that you're just jonesing for right now, then you're definitely going to want to check out what it's all about. There's actually a $200 early bird discount too that ends on April 30th, and we're already more than half full. So if you want to check it out and grab your spot before the early bird discount goes away or we fill up, then go check out goodlifeproject.com slash camp or just go ahead and click the link in your show notes now. On to our show. This week's guest, Krista Tippett, grew up in Oklahoma in a Southern Baptist community where she was steeped in faith. But when she entered her adult year, she left it behind to become a journalist and work in the world of politics in a then-divided East and West Germany, where she started out in the BBC and the New York Times, and then eventually working uh, with the ambassador in West Germany. She spent a lot of time going between both sides of the wall, making deep friendships, became fascinated and inspired by how people on one side could live with seemingly so much under such constrained conditions, yet still find a way to embrace their humanity and sense of lightness and spirituality. That led her back to faith and an advanced degree in divinity, and then to blend her background in spirituality and faith and journalism to start to create public conversations with some extraordinarily wise thinkers And that led to um, what has now become an incredible public radio and podcast phenomenon called On Being. She lays out a lot of the wisdom. She details a, a solid chunk of her own life in a new book called Becoming Wise. Our conversation covers a lot of ground and I'm so excited to share it with you, not only because there's so much wisdom around the idea of living good life, but also on a personal level, when I was starting Good Life Project, I had already been listening to Krista's On Being for a number of years. And the way she was able to create a gentle, generous, safe container for her guests was something that deeply inspired me and the way that I approach trying on some level to create something similar with the guests that we host here. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. You know, I thought kind of an interesting jumping off point for us is a bit of a variation of how you jump off with pretty much all of your guests. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, as as we were just sharing really briefly before we started recording, you've got a new book out and you're transparent on a level that really you haven't been in the past, at least from what I've seen. And uh, so I want to take a bit of a step back. Um, you, you have shared at various points in time that, you know, you're the granddaughter of a Southern Baptist preacher and... Um, you're raised in, in a, quote, religion-soaked culture. And mm. in, in this new book, there's a moment where uh, you write, and I'm going to read this, actually. My Southern Baptist preacher grandfather had a love of play, a corny laugh, and a lusty passion for my grandmother. His presence was a counterpoint to his theology, which was underpinned by a joke-killing litany of rules. So my curiosity is, um, I'd love to know a bit more about about your grandfather and your relationship with him and how his influence on what what his influence was on your early lens on faith and spirituality. So there's the the true story and then there's the way I've processed it over time. So what's interesting <laughs> about that is that Isn't I, that always the case, right? Well, I, that's always true, right? It's memory. Yeah, yeah. You know, what is memory? So as honest as I can be right now at this moment in time, you know, I mean, 
my grandfather was he was this very three-dimensional kind of technicolor figure in my childhood but it was a it was full of mixed messages he was you know he was a hellfire and brimstone preacher mm. and he did have all these rules which my parents didn't follow all his rules so i didn't i didn't experience them as quite a, as oppressive as my mother did having grown up having to follow them but even so my parents were always kind of sneaking around to do things like drink a glass of wine you know he would come mm. over and they would take the wine out of the refrigerator or, you know, the one time they forgot it was this major incident, you know, but he he didn't, you know, basically everything was a slippery slope to sex or addiction. Mm. And and that included, you know, not just <laughs> sex kissing, but dancing or wearing shorts. Um, and addiction was, you know, it wasn't, it was, you know, not ever taking a single sip of anything alcoholic and not playing cards. I mean, all these different paths to addiction. And But the, you know, one thing I've understood over time is that in, you know, he came from his parents and his family had come in Oklahoma in a covered wagon. They'd really been, you know, dirt poor, quite literally. And there's a lot of addiction in his family. And there was no remedy for addiction then. And, you know, mm. there was no birth control. And if you got pregnant under the wrong circumstances, it did devastate people. So I, I've seen in hindsight that, that there was some sense to that. But but what it came across to me as was just, oh, just a, a, a sense of the world as a perilous place. And kind of almost everything you did was fraught with danger. And then on the other hand, my grandfather was passionate and he was he was funny he told very corny jokes he did adore my grandmother you know he was full of passion and i i identified with that i i, I respected that even when i couldn't respect exactly the sense he was making um, about that and so I, I you know what i realized in hindsight is that all those kinds of mixed messages were in also my understanding of you know who God was and what it was to be religious. Yeah, I mean, it, it also it seems like it's also um, it's filtered through to your lens on life. Um, I mean, kind of hearing you go deeper into describing his sort of this this duality, which I guess we all have on some level. You know, when I kind of zoom the lens out and look at your journey, especially earlier in life, at least you know from what I know of it, you know, it's fascinating to me that you have this you know, obviously incredibly adventurous and lively side to you, you know, which led you to a divided Germany, which led you to be a journalist and to, you know, a stringer for the New York Times. And what's interesting to me at the same time is, you know, you described him as Hellfire and Brimstone, sort of the classic. And your just your demeanor of sort of grace and ease and peace and stillness is is so contrary to that <laughs> that in an interesting way, it's almost like I, I perceive a similar duality in you. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. I'll have to think about that. <laughs> um, yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, the thing that I've thought about is that, you know, he was, the world was a fearful place for him. And the other thing I should say is I, I think he had a really big, lovely mind, but he had a second grade education. So hmm. he wasn't trained to use it. And his he, I think he was also kind of scared to use it. And one thing that has occurred to me is that I, I've done some of the things I've done in part kind of for him, you know, w wishing that he had had the freedom and the ease um, and, and could have let go of the fear to yeah. be, I think, bigger, which he was so equipped to be. Yeah. 
Do you feel like he came to that place later in life? I know, um, you know you've written about how later in life and he retired from preaching that he, um, I, I get, I, from what I recall, you say he was a cattle farmer and a, yeah. a pecan grower. <laughs> I mean, it was just a couple of acres, right? It wasn't so, yeah. I mean, it's true that he also was able to have, take a joy and, you know, he he built these birdhouses and I, I, I had no attention span for it and my parents had no attention span for it. But it was this very intricate, you know, working with wood, working with birds. So I think I did see a side of him that actually knew how to enjoy life um, after he retired from preaching. And, you know, he was there with his pecan trees and his vegetable garden and his birdhouses and he was, he was a happy person. Hmm. So as you moved forward through life, um, you know, you ended up going to Brown and, and as we mentioned before, moving to, to journalism and then heading over to, uh, to Germany, where from what I recall, you were with the BBC and then special assistant to the ambassador in West Germany. I guess it was right before or shortly in the years before the wall came down. Yeah, it was in the years before. It was the, the years when the wall was there. Yeah. So I guess, you know, part of my curiosity there also is, in, and it sounds like during this window of time, it was a window where you grew up sort of, you know, in this religion soaked culture. And then, but it sounds like you really largely left it behind during this moment in your life. I totally left it behind. And I, it felt to me like, you know, the, the religious, the religious world of my childhood was not just church on Sundays. It was an entire social universe and when i left when i left that place you know the theology the doctrine that had been part of it without outside its context didn't make sense so it i didn't have any kind of violent rejection of it it just felt irrelevant to me and i was discovering so many things that were so exciting and so captivating and so relevant with a capital r so yeah, for about 10 years, I didn't think much about religion, and I was fully engaged with things that were largely political and non-religious, and that was very gratifying. It was exciting. Yeah, I mean, especially where you were, and, and during the window of time when you were there, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by how you experienced you know, living and moving between a, a nation at once divided by such profound differences, but also bound by this common heritage and change um, and, and how that how that moved into and through you and how that changed you if it did. Yeah, I, there were, well, I guess, you know, it's kind of the way I describe my grandfather and it's kind of the way the world is. There were all these different layers of reality. And I was very fortunate to kind of be in the right place at the right time and to be, end up, there weren't a lot of stringers based in Berlin. Everybody, Western journalists were based in Bonn at that point. So I was able to go there as kind of a, you know, 20-something person with with a few connections, but, but basically kind of be everybody's stringer in Berlin. And that was amazing. And that also allowed me to get to know the diplomatic worlds and, um, yeah, and ultimately have this job where I was um, special assistant and writing speeches and um, kind of doing analysis that was going back to Washington and my last year there, I was special assistant to our ambassador, who was based in Bonn, but he was in Berlin a lot. He was a nuclear arms expert, and so I was, I was working at this very, I was, I was, I was a present at this very, very high level of policy, and of course it was exhilarating on some level, but I was, I was so idealistic, and I was quite disturbed, unsettled by the, the human dynamics of that. Um, and also the contrast I saw between the very developed 
outer lives that you know I, would, I, I was really close to people who had these great big professional lives and they were experts but I was close enough to see that um, they didn't bring that development to their inner life or their personal life and you know I'm at, I was at that age in my mid-20s where I'm trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up and hmm. I was with people who you know really represented the pinnacle of success if I was on a fast track you know that's what I would be and that's who I would be with and that, that kind of led to a bit of a crisis. I mean, really, is this, is this, are these the people I want to surround myself with for the rest of my career? And then at the same time, at the human level, kind of on the ground where people lived, I was fortunate to really know people and love people on both sides of the wall. I always had great visas as a journalist and then as a diplomat. And I saw this, you know, this kind of spiritual moral truth played out in very dramatic terms in Divided Berlin, where you really had people divided down the middle who were so much alike. Um, they were they were the same people, but they had been cast into completely contrasting circumstances. And I saw very vividly that, you know, you could be on the western side of the wall and you could have everything, as we say, and you could be on the eastern side of the wall and you could have nothing. But that that did not determine the dignity or the beauty of the lives people created. You know, that was something that was always up to the person. And it was, of course, circumstances affected you, but that they did not define the quality of life you could create and the richness of the life you could create on a, you know, on a human level. So I was working with those, all that different kind of input. And that's actually what led me to start asking kind of existential spiritual questions again yeah i mean and also i mean what a powerful experience that led to asking those questions at a at a pretty young age actually yeah um, to, to come back to them and and also just being able to dissociate circumstance from experience and contentment fulfillness you know that's something that most people never land on um to to like to be able to see that um you know in your 20s through sort of a an extreme political and geographic yeah. situation is is pretty powerful. Yeah, I, I I I guess you're right. It was just a very unusual setting, and I I just kind of wandered into it. <laughs> but I'm I'm glad now. Yeah. So that then served as the genesis for your sort of return to the study of faith, or return to an interest in faith, at least. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So eventually, after I. I I started thinking about this. First, I wouldn't have used the word spiritual even. It took me a little while to realize that that's what I was coming back to. Mm. But, and I, you know, I did a lot of reading and uh, investigating. And then, and ultimately, I realized that if I was really taking this as seriously as it felt like I was, not just in terms of my inner life, but in terms of still this thing I was thinking about that we're all thinking about in our 20s, like, you know, what? What do I want to do with my life? Where do I want to um, make an imprint? And I eventually realized that I had to, just from the way I am, I needed to really dig into this and explore it. And and getting a theological education seemed like the right, the right way to go for me at that point. Yeah, when you kind of committed to yourself to that path, you know, it's interesting when most people here somebody's going to go and pursue um you know an advanced degree in divinity i guess the assumption is well then you're going to pursue a career um in faith as 
as a leader, as, as some sort of faith-based leader. But what's fascinating to me is that it doesn't sound like that's why you went into it. And then when you came out of it, rather than saying, okay, I want to, you know, play a role as a minister or preacher or leader within a particular faith or tradition, you decided that you wanted to sort of take on the role of the questioner of those same people instead. Yeah, I didn't completely rule out. I mean, I kind of went to divinity school the way I went to Divided Berlin, which was in a mode of exploration. Let's have an adventure. And I absolutely thought, you know, maybe what will happen is I'll I'll get ordained like most of the people are going to divinity school. But that wasn't why I went. And I guess one thing that if you're not going to divinity school with that aim, it, it doesn't I mean, it did actually, it did provide exactly what I was looking for, that deep dive into the discipline of theology and thinking this through and understanding um, theology and, uh, you know, kind of, kind of the, the, the sweep of human history of taking up these questions and, and these, these sacred texts and how they emerged and how they work and notions of community and the very rigorous thinking that is there in theology about the human condition. Like I found that all exhilarating as, you know, more exhilarating than I'd, than I'd imagined, but it doesn't actually qualify you to do anything. So <laughs> when I came out of that, you know, the thing I was still qualified to be was a journalist. Right? A journalist, right. Yeah. So so then I was a journalist with a theological education. <laughs> and Got that was it. okay. I mean, it's not what I had expected, but you know, it, it eventually it eventually led me to this, which is a way to bring those things together, although I did not it was years before I this vision hatched, you know, that this is yeah. how I would bring these things together formally. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in 
one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Although it's, it seems like the idea of you, there's this through line of you being led by questions um, rather than seeking to be the person who delivers answers. It seems like you're the person who's constantly seeking to ask questions, better questions. Um, and I guess part of my curiosity around that is, was that more because you were seeking your own answers or was it because you found yourself with a certain set of skills and a certain background that would allow you to maybe ask questions and have conversations that would in some way uh, have a bigger impact beyond you. Gosh, I don't know. You're you're framing these things in ways I've never thought about before, which is great. (laughs) Um, One thing that comes to mind is I did grow up in this environment where basically what we worked with were answers. Hmm. And... Right, it's like these are the rules. Yeah, yeah. yeah, things were answered, and your job was to understand the answers better. I mean, you could dig into the answers, but you weren't ever questioning them, and and questions in and of themselves didn't have value. And so, you know, it's like sometimes people say, oh, you're such a good listener, you must have grown up in a family of great listeners. And in fact, I'm the opposite thing, where I grew up where nobody was a good listener, and so I became a good listener kind of in response. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably true of my love of questions. You know, when I went to college, having not had much of an education for my first 12 years, going to a place where I was taught that questions were powerful and and that I was going to be judged on the force of my questions and my willingness to kind of follow my questions all the way through to the end, you know, that was thrilling. And I think you're right that I have, that is my passion and that's the passion I've pursued. Yeah, which actually, you know, it really, it tees up why you would have taken the path you've taken. It's really interesting because right now, you know, On Being is this, you know, kind of public radio juggernaut and now podcast juggernaut and you're reaching new audiences in all different ways. But when you started, you know, this was you playing that role was a bit of an anomaly, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I there were. I was just. I was basically a guerrilla warrior for <laughs> for quite a few years. Uh, it just 
there there wasn't any there wasn't any model in public radio for taking on these topics and i think more to the point um culturally in the 90s which is when i started thinking about this early 2000s mm. we were just in this terrible toxic place of setting up very strident voices you know both to speak for religion or against religion but these were very polarizing discussions and inflammatory discussions and so when i started saying look we have to find new ways to talk about this, and it must be possible to speak of these things in public and with the values that public radio models in general of you know intelligence and balance and something that would open imaginations rather than shut them down. But it was a hard sell. It was hard to imagine. And, yeah, and I understood that it was hard to imagine. Right, because when you when you look at the news now, whether it's print or whether it's radio or whether it's TV, you know, you're, and, and to this day, it seems like the rule is still. I mean, well, <laughs> we can bring the presidential election into it. You know, the loudest, the most polarizing, yeah. the most provocative voices are the ones that get attention across the media, and it seems like the assumption has been that if you want to build a successful presence in any form of media, that that's where you have to focus. So. It feels like you tapped into this, you know, undercurrent of people who just say, I want something different. I want what, you know, using your words, I want wisdom. I want quieter, mm -hmm. gentler, yeah. deeper thinkers who have something extraordinary to say, but aren't on the extreme ends, you know, where we can actually have a conversation rather than just fighting over positioning points. Yeah. Yes. I mean, one of the crazy things that was said to me even in public radio in the early years was <laughs> I would like I would say yes we're going to have a big conversation and that's very rare if you you know even there's very little in public radio even that is actually one conversation for the whole hour I mean mm. Terry Gross does that sometimes but not not every show and people would say you know people will have to listen to this <laughs> and that was a, that was a not a selling point right because there's there there is this idea that has been growing in our culture and it's true on many levels that you know, we we have now been attuned. We're accustomed to information and entertainment coming at us in bite-sized pieces and being accessible and being entertaining. And I think that it's true. You know, that that I I would not expect or or insist that people should be listening to something in depth and thoughtful and quiet twenty four seven, right? But I think that somehow the, you know, the massive information that comes at us, the noise of it all actually has made a lot of people know their need of at least having some spaces in their lives, even in their media, for something that dives deep and, yes, that is gentle and you know, so I, so yes, when we, even when we first started putting the show on the air, when I'm sure if I listened to those early shows, I would just find it appalling. <laughs> um, but there were immediately people who said, yeah, you know, yes, we want to be talking about this. We want to be talking about this in public. We, we want to be talking, we want, we want this to be part of public radio. So that is actually why it got to keep going, because there are always those people who resonated and spoke up. 
Yeah, I love that. And I think also sort of building on that, you know, now with the emergence of podcasts and various other forms Mm of audio where you're seeing a renaissance of long form you are it's so interesting content yeah and it's i think it really speaks to that there's i think people have wanted this for a long time you know we hear like you were saying you know we're always told it's got to be shorter or faster you know the attention spans are being cut and and i agree i think that that is to a certain extent true but at the same time there is i just i keep hearing all over the place this deeper yearning for can we just go can we just go deeper and be a little more real and also be a little more gentle and respectful in the way that we built conversations. And so it's, it's fun to see podcasting, you know, certainly many of the top shows are, you know, a lot of the public radio shows that are segmented, but also you're seeing these really long forms, which actually brings me to a fascination with the, with something that you, a choice that you made with your show a couple of years back. Now, I guess maybe it's more than that. You started, releasing not only the finished episodes at about an hour, but the rough cuts, which were are very often close to an hour and a half of just letting the tape roll. Yeah. What was behind that and what's been the response to those those versions? Because I honestly I actually I prefer listening to to the rough cuts of your show. <laughs> than the so you're versions. one of those people. It makes me yeah, so yeah. nervous. <laughs> well um because they're so messy, right? Because well yeah. I, I I well you, you know, I mean I'm when I'm doing the the original interview because I know it's 90 minutes and because I know we're going to have to get it down to something like 45 minutes of conversation for a 52 minute radio hour. Right. It can just it can wander and I can let people go down some side road that I I'm pretty sure is not going to lead us anywhere but it just might and we have the time to do that. Uh and I will kind of sometimes blather on a bit just to just to uh kind of let them relax and start reacting to me instead of thinking about being the person who has to answer a question. You know, all these things. I know you're familiar with all of this. Um, This was my colleague, Trent Gillis, who actually had to talk to me and our producers for two years to convince us that this was a good idea. And Hmm. what's been interesting about it is I think think even for people who don't listen to the unedited, it engenders trust – just that we're willing to put that out there. And, you know, that's been so interesting to see. I think that is also a byproduct of this media barrage that we all experience all the time. There's a, there's a lot of mistrust out there. And that has kind of showed people that we, you know, when we talk about transparency and authenticity and integrity, we're willing to kind of put put the mess out there and let that be on record, too. Yeah. And, and also I think the vulnerability, you know, it's, you know, what's interesting is that I think listening to your rough cuts has had an interesting effect on me as somebody who's, you know, trying to build my own body of work. It's in that it, it let me see your humanity on a more visceral level. And in doing so, something triggered in me that said, it's okay to let that part of myself through as well. Sort of like you've gone before me. Oh, I love that. uh, That means a lot to me. Yeah, because I'm not polished in the unedited, right? The show version is a kind of polished gem. Yeah. um, I I just, I found it just um, both fascinating and also permission giving Hmm. in an interesting Hmm. way. I love that. Thank Um, you. Thanks for telling me that. 
You, one of the things that you also obsess about is, uh, and we've talked about your, you know, your, you love questioning, but it seems like language, you know, on, and this is one of the things you write about on, you know, like on words and questions and language and listening, yeah. you know, the other side of questions is the listening side. And that's something you explore a lot and you write about a lot and you speak about a lot and you also don't speak about a lot because you're busy listening. <laughs> you use the phrase, I think it came when through a conversation you had with was it Rachel Naomi Remen, yes. generous questions. Yes, generous listening. Take, yeah. Take me into that a little bit. Yeah, well, um generous listening, which is a phrase of Rachel Naomi Remen, who's a physician who's really helping among other things, she's helped kind of young new doctors and nurses get back in touch with the original impulse to being a, a doctor or a nurse, which is to be a healer. Um, you know, she talks about the healer's art, but but medical school doesn't, you know, strangely disconnects people from that impulse and from the notion of art. And I, I think I think you could say that, uh, the same of a lot of our institutions and disciplines. They kind of disconnect us from that core of human passion and longing and service. And one of the things she tries to teach people is what she calls generous listening. And in in that context, in the medical context, you know, doctors have intake when they when somebody comes presenting with a condition. And, you know, basically there's a checklist of things you have to learn about them. But rather than just it being this this pro forma experience, you know, she teaches people to know more about the story behind the person, behind the illness, which in fact always determines, you know, makes every course of illness um, and every potential for healing different. And I think you can extrapolate that again to all of our disciplines and endeavors. So some of the things I started to learn through that with Rachel that I've continued to learn from many other people is, you know, just this notion that listening it's not just about being quiet and waiting while the other person for the other person to say what they have to say. It's it's really about being present. It's about being present to the fullness of who this person is. It's about being in the room with who you are. You know, not pretending that you can because that's what we do a lot. We pretend like we can bracket that off, but we don't. And then we end up being inauthentic and we actually end up being not as effective with each other. So, yeah, generosity is about much more than silence or, or speaking a question. It's about much more than the, the words that pass between you. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm curious whether you've observed this also. It feels like that listening is a bit of a lost art these days and that when you do create that container where you're really present – and you're engaged and you're not, you know, constantly checking your device, but you just say, okay, it's, it's me, it's you, and you've got me. That, that is, it's so rare these days that there's a level of safety and, and yes. generosity using Rachel's um, words that's disarming for people because it's just so rare. It's irresistible. Yeah. But we don't have that experience very often. And and I think sometimes because we don't have that experience, you're so right. It's a lost art and we have to recultivate it. And because we're untrusting, there's the work of becoming listeners. And then there's also the work of, I think, like creating circumstances for that to happen, for people to, you know, for you to create something trustworthy and for people to believe in that, to be able to feel like they can relax. I mean, yeah. we've all... For a few generations here, we've been raised and trained 
in so many ways to be advocates for who we are and what we believe and what we care about. And there is absolutely so much good that's brought into, into the world through that. But we need, we need more of an ecosystem of skills and curiosity about each other than that to, to become, the, to create the common life that I think we actually want, you know, in fact, the common life that, that we want and need to achieve a lot of our, our highest ideals. So, yeah. so, so getting into, so becoming, cultivating the art of listening actually asks us to put to one side some things that have become very instinctual and that, you know, we feel a lot of righteous indignation about our ability to, you know, speak up <laughs> and mm-hmm. defend and and present. And again, we need to do that, but that's that's not all we need to do with each other. Yeah, uh, so agree. Um, you know, it, it also, it brings up um, the work of Robert Cialdini and sort of his work on influence. And one of the things that he talks about is what he calls the consistency principle, where once you've said or done something publicly, even small, that you feel compelled to continue to speak and act consistently with that thing, and it's almost like you need to create deliberate opportunities to just pause and listen mm. to start start to disarm that pattern so yeah. that you actually do open yourself to the possibility of something else and the possibility of change and the possibility of serendipity or something better. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I hadn't I hadn't heard of him. So and and that kind of leads to uh you know, it seems like your questioning has also led you to uh an exploration and a bit of an exaltation of the idea of mystery, of exploring living in mystery or uncertainty. You had a great line, I think it was in response to uh who you seek to have conversations with in a, in an interview in Washington Post, I think it was a couple of years back. Um, and you describe the people as people who are who really honor mystery. Mm-hmm. What is it that draws you to to mystery? Well, I would say that probably in those years in which I turned my back on spiritual life and religion and didn't think such things were relevant, I think that I, you know, I I bought into an idea that is embedded in some of our, you know, best public institutions that that this is the thing we bracket out of our public life and of our official life. And I, I, and I just don't, I don't think that's um, actually reality based because I, I think that mystery is a common human experience, and you know, you can, you can imbue it with a transcendent meaning or not, but you know, being born is mysterious, falling in love is mysterious, dying is mysterious, and there are lots of things in between. Um, and so, I, I actually think that acknowledging mystery is a form of honoring reality. And in fact, then, as I've gone through my life of conversation, I would say that as a group, scientists are the people I interview who have the most robust and actually delighted vocabulary mm. of mystery. Um, so interesting. Right? And, and so it, it is not something that is in contrast to a life of the mind. And, uh, I mean, I can, I, can, I can keep connecting dots. I... I also have become aware. So I think I think I think the religious among us and the theologians actually could benefit, could could learn something from how scientists uh, take delight in what they, you know, what they don't know. Like that, that is a great adventure. That I once interviewed this um, 
geneticist who was also an Anglican priest, and he said to me that he thought the spirituality of a scientist was like the spirituality of a mystic. And that is Mm. to say that at any given moment, you're always delving as deeply as you can into what you what you can know and what you know to be true, and you're mining that and you're living by it. And at the same time, you know, you're holding that in this creative tension with what you do not yet, cannot yet understand. You know, what you may never be able to tie up in this lifetime, and you you honor that and you 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 appreciate it. And I think that scientists are good at you know pr- precisely holding together that creative tension. And what I also see is that at the heart of our religious traditions, you know, our most venerable institutions, the, the, the monotheistic institutions, certainly, at the very orthodox core, there is an insistence just like that, that, you know, yes, you know, there, there, are, there are truths that are, that are big enough, you know, that they're worth living for and maybe dying for, but you, that you that you are always called to hold that, to, to stand there together with, an, a, again, not just an acknowledgement, but a celebration that there are things we do not understand, will not understand in this lifetime. And that's, that's the great adventure. And so I feel like if more religious people, I feel like this, this actually can, could allow deeply religious people to navigate the 21st century with, you know, with courage and delight, kind of bringing the depths of these traditions at their best, you know, into our common life. I mean, notions like compassion and forgiveness and empathy that, you know, in the 21st century, scientists, science is studying these things. I mean, these, these are these are actually kind of qualities that we need to inhabit a globalized world. So bringing the depths of tradition in, you know, yes, believing what you believe, knowing what you know, but also, uh, you know, just knowing that you can also live and honor the mystery uh, of difference, the mystery of religious others, the mystery of these unanswered questions in our common life. I think yeah. that's a recipe for graceful living and for peaceful living. So so yeah. I, I think of mystery as something it, on the one hand, very ordinary and also powerful in ways that we haven't thought about. Yeah, and I so resonate with that. And I also see, I, I see mystery as the sort of the necessary building block for possibility, you know? Yeah. Um, Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I had the opportunity to sit down with Milton Glaser a couple years back, and uh, during the conversation, he, he uttered these words, certainty is a closing of the mind. Yeah. And it just really, it landed, you know, and that phrase has never left me, because if, you're, if you can't live in that space of, of the mystery of the, the not knowing you know, then the moment you close that, the moment you say, you know, like there's, you know, I, I have the answers. There's nothing, you know, to know. You've closed the doors to possibility and and connection and meaning. So I, I love the, really the elevation in your work of mystery and exploring, having conversations with people who who also really live in that space because those are conversations that I feel are steeped in possibility and and. Man, we really need that these days. Um, you yes. also you also brought up the um, use the word delight, and um, I think one of the things that's always resonated with me with your work and with many of the guests that you have is there's, I, and I don't know if you do this deliberately. I'm curious, but you've spent time with so many of people who just sort of giggle. Um, <laughs> I know it's true. You know, it's like yeah. Desmond Tutu, Father Greg Boyle, James. It seems like the Jesuits, especially, Aren't they, they great? just seem so, so light funny. and yeah. funny and playful. Yeah. Is, is that something that you're, you sort of deliberately look to? Well, I would say that was a discovery that actually led me to want to do the radio show. Because again, mm. I'm thinking about this in the mid nineties. I've come out of studying theology what passes for religious discourse and religious voices in our public life is, you know, hateful and strident, toxic. And yeah. then I got sent off on this oral history project for these for these Benedictines. You know, I, I think monastics are kind of clue to the secrets of the universe, <laughs> um, which I kind of get into in my book a little bit. Um, you know, they're spiritual rebels. That They are the original spiritual rebels. And anyway, so these Benedictines had this uh, ecumenical institute, which you've never heard of, but it had, cre- you know, created these incredible ripple effects all through the world in the mid-20th century. And... One of the common denominators, I was interviewing people who had, you know, you know, Pope John the Twenty Third's liaison with Protestant visitors at Vatican II, you know, people who had been in positions of great power, and people all across the spectrum, like Nazarene Holiness, Armenian Orthodox. And the common denominator of every single one of these people, they said they were fun. <laughs> <laughs> they were fun, and that when I, as I'm ha- I'm doing this oral history project and these interviews, they're 
they're there's they have you know beautiful minds or having this you know big deep rich intellectual conversation and lots of laughter and as you say lots of giggling and lots of ability to laugh at oneself and i realized that was one of the big things i realized as i'm going through this that you know that is what is absolutely missing from this public expression of religion and i was you know i just feel like people would like to hear this too um, but the humor was absolutely just, you know, at the heart of that. And it's continued yeah. to be true, right? I mean, you've heard it. It's not, it I don't manufacture yeah. it. I don't like, we don't select <laughs> for a sense of humor, but it's just almost always there. Right. But it kind of makes you wonder if if you do select for on, on whatever your criteria is, you know, quote, wisdom, and so many of the people that you then sit down with are just awash in this sense of lightness. Yeah. Um, you know, is is that association? Are are they interlinked? You know, are, yes. is the wiser you <laughs> get, are. sort of the lighter you become. Yeah, I think a sense of humor is a mark of wisdom. Yeah, I which mean, is which comes which is first. Like, I don't know. I think they feed each other. Right, and it's funny because I remember um, your conversation. I think it was with James Martin, and yeah. <laughs> um, I was just smiling the whole time. And the question that popped into my mind, and, and for those who don't know, he's a, um, a Jesuit, and. I, I kept asking myself, I'm like, what? Because you guys, I remember, spoke about laughter and joy in his faith, in his tradition. And, and it clicked in my mind. I said, you know, I've heard a lot of conversations with Jesuits and they all seem to be happy. And I was curious. I was like, yeah. is it that happy people are like, if you have a happy predisposition, you're drawn to that approach to faith because it's so embodied in it? Or is it something about that path that brings it out? I don't know with the Jesuits. I think it's probably. I I also do have that experience, particularly with Jesuits. I mean, in fact, there's a a novel that I really love. A couple of science fiction novels by Mary Daria Russell called The Sparrow. And you know, the Jesuits were uh, Ignatius of Loyola said and charged his his brothers to find God in all things. And a lot of them went on to be explorers, right? So Teilhard de Chardin is another great Jesuit from history who was a paleontologist who helped discover, you know, verify human evolution. And this this science fiction novel um, is about Jesuits being the first people who go to who find um, other forms of life in space. <laughs> and I and I it's it's a beautiful beautiful novel. But I, then I remember talking to some Jesuits, and I I said, you know, do you do you like that? And they said, ah, oh, it's too serious. <laughs> it's <just> not, <laughs> they're they're not having enough fun. They said, <laughs> right, right. I love that. Um, I don't know. I don't know how that happens but i so I, you know i want to say something that connects this actually with the mystery piece and that is that those of us who who are able to lean into mystery and take delight in it and also find the joy in it are very fortunate and and i'm 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 aware because i i'm, I'm attentive to the human condition you know and as you know from from the book i really think that our i think that's the piece we don't pay attention to when we when we talk about all the issues we talk about, until we really focus on that, we, we can't actually achieve our other goals. And part of the human condition, which we know from science now, is that we're actually not hardwired for uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Or, or some of us are, are going to, at any given time, those people who feel vulnerable or threatened are, are not going to be able to lean into mystery and, and have fun there. Um, yeah. And yet, as you said... It's it's the only way to create possibility, right? And it's the only way to create new realities. 
So, uh, for me, what that says is that there's a there's a big place at this moment in our collective life for us to help you know whoever we are wherever we are create spaces that can be trustworthy where fear can be calmed and also um yeah for those of us who can enjoy mystery and and see the delight in it to find ways to you know to be companions to kind of opening up that possibility for other people but with a lot of compassion you know with a lot of understanding that this is not necessarily a natural way to be yeah, I mean, I think if anything, it's it's we're wired or soft wired. I don't like to say hardwired anymore because I think mm. that, that mm-hmm. a lot of that is being changed. But we're at least soft wired for for the exact opposite. Yeah, you know, we're to to run from the dark cave. You know, yeah. from a, a place maybe originally of just security and survival. But um, which is also why you know you spent a fair amount of time also speaking with um, people of various uh, Buddhist mm-hmm. paths or traditions, and it seems like the the West is sort of is running towards adaptations of Buddhism and mindfulness practices. And I wonder if in, in part that's because the, the fundamental practices are, are they give you the skills to actually spend more time in that place of mystery, in that place of uncertainty and suffer less um, in a world where it seems like you know you can't run from the truth of um, living you know, and Joseph Campbell's abyss anymore. It's just, it is. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, that fight and f- or flight place in our brain, it's the most primitive part of our brain. It's still very powerful. And meditation, you know, uh, um, Richard Davidson, who did a lot of, who did some of the studies that have given us actually our understanding of neuroplasticity, you know, how we in fact have the ability to to change our brains through our behaviors and through behaviors like practices like meditation you know he's he's told me recently that there there are studies now where they can actually see the amygdala shrink mm, i mean so, so I mean, you know if you needed any more concrete demonstration that that these practices are precisely working on you know the the parts of us that can call us to our worst Mm. in stress and there's a lot of stress to go around right now and it also brings up this really interesting connection it's something that you write about you've spoken about many times and you write about which is the sort of the relationship between spiritual practice and i guess what you call the flesh or the body you know it's uh it's funny i was um last year i think it was i was sitting down with liz gilbert and i said you know what's one of the things that you would tell people to be able to create at your highest level. And she said, take care of your animal. And yeah. you've had so many conversations, you know, the one that really stands out that you, that I remember hearing you've written about also with Bessel van der Kolk, you know, really going deep into how everything we experience is wired, you know, emotional experiences wired and embodied. And there's this really intimate relationship. Yeah. Just mind blowingly so intimate levels. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so the idea of really having to explore the relationship between spirituality and the body, yeah. the flesh, you know, the embodiment, carnality, beauty, and all of its different roles is something that seems like you, it, it feels like actually it's something that you've been focusing on increasingly. Is that is that just my perception? Or? Well, it's kind of interesting for you to say that because I, I mean, not not intentionally, but it's it's highly likely because it's... I would say it's something I've focused on 
personally, I would say, aside from the from mystery becoming something that I just experienced to be an invitation and and so rich and I can take delight in the the, the second greatest discovery of of these years of conversation for me has been that you know wisdom and spirituality are embodied and that um in fact and i think i think that the i, I it's hard for me to even articulate this cuz i don't quite understand it but i actually think that our our capacity to to inhabit to to welcome mystery and to inhabit life in its fullness even spiritual life is is going to be limited if we're not fully planted in our bodies and and that means in all of their grace and all of their flaws um and i think i grew up um and for a long time into adulthood uh was very cerebral about these things or it's all about ideas ideas and questions <laughs> and for me growth has been in getting out of my head and into my body and then learning all the ways that these things in fact have always been connected is just such a revelation. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I have to imagine also that your, your upbringing steeped in sort of, you know, with your grandfather and Southern Baptist culture was sort of, you know, it was almost like there's a, a deliberate split where you just don't go to that place. <laughs> yeah. 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 So there's some significant rewiring that has to happen there. Yeah, but I'm 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 attentive too in how at the other end of our cultural spectrum the Enlightenment did this to us as well. You know, I think therefore I am. I mean, that is so yeah, incomplete. True. <laughs> it's true, true. so incomplete. So true. <laughs> yeah. You you also you talk about um and this is funny. I, I'm I was brought up. I live um AJ Jacobs line. I'm 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 Jewish the way Olive Garden is Italian. So that's kind of how I was brought up. <laughs> right. Um. And uh, you you use it. You offer this phrase, Yiddish phrase, nefesh, and um, really, it's you know, I guess, based around the idea that the soul actually needs the body to emerge; that it doesn't exist independently. And um, am I getting that right? Yeah, and and I I it I you know I, I think it's a kind of again, it's something that's going to be hard to put precise words around. But yes, yeah. that the soul is emergent, not this idea that certainly I grew up with that you know the soul is like someplace in you or it's out there somewhere, but it's a thing. And and the idea of nefesh is that the soul is emergent and it's emergent through the life you live and it's emergent through your body moving through the world. It's emergent through the relationships you have with other human beings. So, you know, it is dependent on physicality on in on many levels. And I just that seems right to me. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. Um in a past life I taught yoga also and uh it was stunning how often emotion would be released yes. through physical movement, through just slow breathing and deliberate physical movement and intention, and just the tears would pour every single class. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And of course, I've experienced that as a, as a student and a practitioner as well. I want to be respectful of our time. So and another interesting topic, and maybe a, a place where you're at your most vulnerable in in uh, this book and your current work is uh, conversation around love. You share a lot about your personal life and your marriage. Yeah. And um, if I might, I'm, I'm just going to read a few sentences from the chapter where you write, and this is where, where your, your marriage was wrapping up. You write, when my marriage ended, I walked into a parallel universe that had been there all along. I became one of the modern multitudes of walking wounded in the wreckage of long-term love. Strangest of all, on this planet, 
is the way we continue to idealize romantic love and crave it for completion, to follow those love songs and those movies. Um, it seems like, you know, we are so much of our waking hours is governed in some way by this this mad quest of what you call idealized romantic love. Yeah, yeah and... Um... There's so many pitfalls and problems to that. And on top of that, there's the, the larger tragedy that that love, you know, like the Beatles said, <laughs> is actually what can save us. But I don't, yeah. I mean, I think it's a word, it's a practice that we, uh, uh, that we have to, that we have yet just barely begun to excavate all the aspects of love. And, you know, what love could mean, not just between two people. You know, I think sometimes you see that worked out in a long relationship. Um, But from person to person in common life. And, you know, what I started to think about as I started to realize, you know, I started to question this idea that I don't have love in my life. You know, I, I talk about, you know, one day I realize that's just not true. I have so many kinds of love in my life. I don't have that one particular kind of love at this moment in time. But what I have is, is so much. And to, to for us to learn to, to appreciate and I think cultivate these other kinds of love, these other forms of love. And, and as, you know, this terrible thing we do that if we don't have this one thing and, you know, because it is, because love is always where the condition, human condition is in, high, you know, starkest relief. Um, that love also is always very complex, right? <laughs> it's, it's That love, even when you have it, is very rarely that romantic peak thing. So I guess I just, I, I long for us to be more realistic about this, and it's what I'm trying to do. Um, which means actually being able to take a different kind of delight, right? It's not all kind of eat your spinach. Mm, yeah. And it, it, it sort of, um, you know, it ties into the idea of, I guess it's, you know, it's been written about differently and, you know, for, well, I guess a really long time, you know, the idea of four different types of love, you know, and, and passionate love or romantic love, just being one yeah. of four that each have its own thing. You, there's an interesting thing, sort of exploration, where you you take it to a place also of sort of framing, zooming the lens out and getting a bit meta and framing love as, I guess you could call it a civic force. Yeah. I'd like for us to try that. I'd like for us to dare that. And some of the most powerful conversations I've had in these this last year or two where there's such, you know, where we are, where there's just a lot to despair about in terms of our racial uh, well-being. You know, John Powell, who I, I, I talk about in the book, um, who's somebody who knows those front lines and is a legal scholar, but, you know, he says he wants to reframe the question of race into the question of belonging, you know, and if mm. we if we could internalize the reality that we are connected and, you know, we may be in a bad relationship, uh, but we are in relationship. And if we could um, let par- let some of our effort be towards that, and you know, it can sound. I know it sounds squishy, maybe to to talk about love as a as a public good, but but 
But the great people across history who we admire and look back at and say they changed the world, you know, they all did this. You know, King, King's vision was the beloved community. Mm. And he set something in motion. And I think it's this beloved community part that we we actually have to pick up now, right? That didn't happen. We 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 got some some changes in structures and laws. I mean, there's some some fundamental things changed, but this relationship, this internalizing our relationship and caring for each other and letting that care shape our life together, including the practical structures, that's the piece that is unfinished. Yeah. I wonder also, you, you mentioned the idea of belonging, which is, you know, we know to be a very deep and profound physiological, psychological need. You know, we must have it. And um, yeah. it seems like... You, from the research that I've seen, you know, there is a, there's a bit of a mass departure from organized religion, organized faith. And, and also many of the sort of, you know, the quote bastions of society or culture that would have provided that sense of enduring belonging. It doesn't seem like it, those things are providing it on the level that they used to, which makes me wonder whether, you know, where, if we have to have that, where where are we going to find that now? Yeah, I, it's absolutely true that the places we used to look for that are not providing it, or even if they want to, people aren't coming. Right? Um, mm. But I do. I think that it's kind of new ways of of gathering communally, of convening, of of claiming identity with a group, which is chosen. You know, that's happening all over the place. It's happening online. It's happening offline. Yeah, it's happening in places like CrossFit. It's happening in yoga studios, right? It's often actually, you know, to kind of connect this with the conversation we were having a minute ago, it's, it's happening. A lot of it's happening in conjunction as we, like, rediscover our wholeness, which is re- rediscovering our bodies. I think the question for me is uh, – I'm I'm a big kind of I want to connect dots, right? So, and I think this is also behind your question. It's it's right now it's just very dispersed. And I think people, you know, people find courage and they find meaning and they find community, they find strength. Um I I'm I'm wanting us to make sure that we kind of pool our efforts, right? That there's cross-pollination, that we know mm-hmm. that it's not just our group over here that is committing to to you know connect inner life with outer life but that we you know that we can draw courage in wider and wider circles and and that's what i i don't know i actually have a lot of hope and and trust that that can happen but i don't quite know how that's going to happen right now yeah i love that and and that kind of brings us full circle also towards the end of um of uh, becoming wise speaking on the topic of, of hope you offer, uh, my mind inclines now more than ever toward hope. And it really, through our conversation, it feels that way. I mean, it feels like there's a sense of hope that radiates from you and that there is, as much as there's a lot of, you know, we hear in the mainstream news, um, a lot of doom and gloom, that there is, there's a lot of wonder and a lot of possibility and hope that is simultaneously unfolding, that maybe it's time to shine more light on. Yeah, and I think hope is something that we can acquire. And for me, you know, it's hard one, but hope is also a choice we can make. And, you know, the opposite choice, which is to be resigned and cynical, is to me just too easy. 
and lazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we can choose, you know, hope for me is, is reality-based. I don't use the word language of optimism. It's not wishful thinking. It's deciding I'm going to live by this vision and um, I'm going to point at it when I see it. I'm going to embody it when I can. This is what I'm going to move towards and, you know, hopefully be infectious in that, um, encouraging others to move towards. So it's not something you have to have given to you, but it is something you have to claim. Mm. I like that. It, um, I like it because it, you know, it reeks of agency. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's a word we like. Maybe we just yeah, call it agency. It. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, yeah. I, you're, my word is. I think it's funny because I've heard the word agency thrown around a lot lately. Yeah, which is probably I too. It was kind of top of mind, mm-hmm. and uh, but I think it's it's not a, all that an accessible word for most people. So, at least I think I get what. Um, people mean when they're yeah. they're saying it. Yeah. I think choice is probably more your word intention. Yeah. You have to choose it. Um so coming full circle, uh, you know, the name of this is is Good Life Project. So if I were to offer that phrase to you, to live a good life, um what comes up? Oh, this is like the question I ask at the end now about how what you think about what it means to be human and it's I realize mm. it's a very hard question. <laughs> um, oh um my answer to that has been so evolutionary, you know. I think at this point, um, yes, I am full of a kind of soaring hope that I choose. And I I love the big, juicy questions that are out there. Um, but somehow I understand that my ability to live by those things and to keep them renewed uh, is, is also about me being really close to the ground, you know, like really loving my children and doing my yoga and, you know, um, enjoying the place I come from, being good to myself, being good to the people around me, that it's it's somehow about joining that, you know, what is close with what is aspirational and understanding that you, you know, that those two feed each other. You don't get one without the other. So it's, a, you know, it's about... I think so much these these last few years about this work of joining inner life with outer life. That's kind of my understanding of spirituality that is that I aspire to and that I think is interesting to me. And uh, and that's about you know, it's about what it means to be human and 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 delving into that with the raw materials of my life. And it's about this realization that you know who we are to each other, you know, who I am to the people around me, who I let them and encourage them to be to me is also tied to that personal aspiration. It's some of the ways I'm thinking about a good life these days. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. This was challenging in a really good way. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, thanks so much for listening. We love sharing real, unscripted conversations and ideas that matter. And if you enjoy that too, and if you enjoy what we're up to, I'd be so grateful if you would take just a few seconds and rate and review the podcast. It really helps us get the word out. You can actually do that now right from the podcast app on your phone. If you have an iPhone, you just click on the reviews tab and take a few seconds and jam over there. And if you haven't yet subscribed while you're there, then make sure you hit the subscribe button while you're at it. And then you'll be sure to never miss out on any of our incredible guests or conversations or riffs. And for those of you, our awesome community who are on other platforms, any love that you might be able to offer sharing our message would just be so appreciated. 
Until next time, this is Jonathan Fields signing off for Good Life Project. Thank you.